Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mike Davis, that rabble-rousing urban theorist who used to drive long-haul trucks and is now a prolific writer and acute political analyst, joins us to talk about the great god Trump and the white working class. The title of his forthcoming article in the new journal Catalyst, now posted at Jacobin. We'll get Mike's take on our diseased political parties and the coming political and social war here that he says is now inevitable. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'm very pleased to have Mike Davis with us. He's a writer, a rabble-rouser, a political activist, urban theorist, historian. He's got a bunch of books out there, including famously City of Courts and Planets of Slums and Victorian Holocaust and many more articles. His article on Trump that's going to appear in the inaugural edition of the new journal Catalyst is posted on Jacobin's magazine website. That's at jacobinmag.com. And it's called The Great God Trump and the White Working Class. We're going to get Mike's take on the diseased political parties here and the coming political and social war that he says is now inevitable. Mike is talking to us from San Diego. Mike, welcome. Thank you, Susie. In your account of the election, you've argued that it's a mistake to see Donald Trump's victory as resulting from a shift in the vote of the white working class in his favor. And I want to get to that point. But before, perhaps we could get your account of the longer term background for it. In other words, it looks as if the long-term restrengthening of the Republican Party depended on a crucial extent by its winning over some of the white working class that had routinely supported the Democrats and win them over to the Republicans. So how did that happen in what proportion? Well, I mean, it goes back to George Wallace in 1968, to Nixon in 72, to Reagan Ethnic white workers were the major strategic objective of the strategy that Kevin Phillips developed for the Nixon campaign, this kind of realignment of ethnic workers, white workers in the north, and southern whites continued to be dominant in the Reagan years. But it's gone back and forth. That is a lot of voters, white working class voters who may have voted once for Reagan, came back and voted for Clinton. The continuous shift, of course, has been in the South, and it's occurred in two stages. First of all, voting for Republican candidates in presidential elections, but continuing to vote for Democrats in local and state elections. And a famous example was West Virginia a state in which local and state elections are almost entirely won by Democrats up until 2000. And in the last election, this famously Democratic state, West Virginia, voted, I think, about 73 percent of the vote for Trump. Only uh, Wyoming exceeded in terms of the Republican percentage. So there's been this long-term shift toward the Republican Party. And I think the election was misinterpreted by attributing much of the phenomena of Trump's success to a major defection of white workers to his campaign. And that simply didn't happen. He won the election because he was able to preserve and come close to getting the same vote that Romney did in the upper Midwest 
and in the uh, southeastern states. So you're sort of saying that it's a myth that it was a working class revolt that was a key to his victory. And you just started to say that Trump didn't really win much more than Romney had. No, in fact, he actually won a little less in those areas. Where the kind of stereotype or this image of the Trump victory is true is in a score of counties, mainly along the rim of the Great Lakes, but also in eastern Minnesota, western Iowa. And these are counties that you might describe as rural, but in fact, they're industrial counties with small, key industrial cities. And they had voted for Obama in 2008, and many of them voted in 2012, sometimes by large margins. And this is where Clinton spectacularly lost the vote, as much as 20% swings. And in some cases, in Ohio and Iowa, Trump made gains on Romney. In other cases, he simply equaled the Romney vote. Overall, the phenomena had more to do with the decline in the Democratic vote than any sudden or seismic shift toward Trump. And the key thing here was, and this is, I think, what's largely been overlooked, is by the time he went to the convention, he'd alienated almost all the power brokers and major forces in the Republican Party. And he did something very smart, which was he turned to the Christian right, and he basically let them write the Republican platform, the most reactionary in history. He married Mike Pence as his vice president. He's given the religious right almost anything they've wanted. And, of course, his campaign team was essentially purged and reconstituted by the group who'd been the key backers of Cruz. And this is the Mercer family, the billionaire Mercer family, who are investors in Breitbart. And they shifted Kellyanne Conway to the campaign. Mm -hmm. They brought in Bannon. They put all the resources that they'd invested behind Cruz. And then gradually, others followed them. So he won the campaign, I think, most of all, because he gave the Christian right everything they dreamed about in a presidential campaign. And he skipped, of course, good on those promises, the Supreme Court, Pence, putting Jerry Falwell in charge of a task force on education and higher education. And the payoff will be not just in terms of tack on women's rights to choose an abortion, but freeing churches from the remaining legal obstacles to engaging blatantly in politics, opening up vast new streams of funding for religious schools through vouchers, which, of course, is Betsy you know, DeVos, DeVos. right. This is such an amazing sort of feat, in a way, for Trump, who is certainly not religious, but is now either pretending to be or, as you said, married Pence and is just letting him run with it. This is sort of where I wanted to go. Not just education, but how was he able to do that? And now we're seeing in the unrolling of the repeal of Obamacare and in the nomination of these extreme right-wing privatizers, you could say, from in every managed possible, that there's some inevitable conflicts that are going to come up given 
the Bannon faction and the populist national appeal that allowed Trump to win and or maybe not win, but opposition to trade deals, anti-immigration, and then this other side. Maybe you could sort of talk about all of that. Well, the turning point was after he won the nomination, but still was isolated from all the traditional institutions in the Republican Party. They came to him. They remade him. It's less any strategic brilliance to Trump Mm -hmm. than a number of of the most important players. Again, this kind of shadowy Mercer family that was involved with Cruz, the hedge fund people, the Heritage Foundation. And they were willing to dump their own previous preferences and royalties to Bush, to Rubio, and so on to take advantage of it, and they remade it. And he just opened the door. Well, he was a gift to them because their party was in total disarray. I was taking bets on which party was going to disintegrate first, and now he strengthened them. (laughs) No, it was extraordinary. The Republican Party looked to be in its death throes. Mm -hmm. And, of course, for the Christian right, this was the ultimate election. This was an ethical election. It was, in a way, their last chance. And so they took advantage of it. And if you talk to people on the Christian right or people who go to mega churches and so on, you get less enthusiasm for Trump than you do for Pence and for the appointments in the administration. I mean, you had leading uh, evangelical Christians have been involved at every level in making appointments and selections. So it's huge, unexpected victory for them. The other group that proved to be crucial after the convention, or the energy industry and the hedge funds. Never has there been an election on both sides in terms of who financed Clinton and who financed Trump after the convention. So dominated by hedge funds and private equity. And what's interesting is so many of these hedge funds, like the Carl Icons, for instance, are heavily invested in energy. Hmm. So uh, is energy the, the key there? Side, they're heavily invested in solar. On the Republican side, they're heavily invested in fracking and gas and oil. So they've seized upon the administration as an opportunity to both deregulate finance and deregulate the environment, to deregulate energy, because this is a very complex moment and something of a culmination for the energy industry to invest in. We're seeing as well, you know, in Pruitt now, he's saying that that the science is still out, the question is still out on whether or not fossil fuels and greenhouse gases are causing climate change. So it's But in a way, stunning. less important than that kind of primitive stupidity mm-hmm. is that the energy industry is in this very complex moment. A lot of these people, the big investors, for example, they have some solar but also they're tremendously excited about fracking and the possibility of American-produced cheap energy. Forget about global warming and the environment. And what they want is freedom. And as hedge funds, of course, they're also invested in things like sovereign debt and small industrial companies. They want financial deregulation. And it was interesting that in the final election, a lot of the people who had been supporting somebody other than Trump, the hedge fund types, the investors, actually made a fortune (laughs) out of the election. 
Paul Singer, for instance, who I'm trying to remember, was he Bush or Rubio? He's a major billionaire mm-hmm. Republican donor. He suddenly got hot for, for Trump in the final part of it and started pushing his money into the stocks of private prisons and correction firms and came away with a huge bundle. Financial stocks gone up, I think, Bank of America by 40%, Goldman Sachs by 30%. So there's been this spree of speculation around Trump, but it's short it's short term. The big contradiction, which you allude to, is between the economic nationalism exactly with identified with the Pat Buchanan wing, which is a very small wing of, of the conservative movement. And Bannon, very little originality in his ideas. When you hear Bannon speak, you're hearing Pat Buchanan. Right. But economic nationalism... Except, could I just ask, because sure. the difference there, it seems, is the aggressive putting America first and moving to wipe out ISIS or more of an imperial stamp, I guess, on economic nationalism. And you're, you're moving toward it, Mike Davis, and that's, you know, threatening protectionism, immigration controls and all of that. But then, go ahead, I'd like to hear about this contradiction. Well, the contradiction is this. The main basis of the Republican Party in the South and in the Midwest, have become more globalized and export-dependent than ever. Farmers rely on their foreign markets, whether that's selling corn to Mexico or exporting wheat to China. But there have been very dramatic shifts in the southern economy over the last generation. Traditional industries like furniture and textiles have almost gone extinct. And the small factory towns in the Piedmont have just been wiped out. But at the same time, you now have 12, 14 major auto plants in the South, all non-union, European and Japanese. The widening of the Panama Canal is leading to huge expansion of port capacity in places mm-hmm. like Savannah and Charleston right. and Miami. In fact, take South Carolina, the ultimate really the deepest South State, Republican state, now has a huge Boeing plant where the union was just voted down. Boeing is, of course, entirely basically an exporter. It has a new BMW plant, a Volvo plant, and Charleston's uh, container port getting billions of dollars of new investment. Do you think South Carolinans and people like Nikki Haley really want to see tariffs and trade wars, it's not going to happen. So that, I think, is an insurmountable contradiction. The question is, when do you really approach that contradiction in terms of a struggle in Congress? And so far, Trump administration has talked about NAFTA, has talked about China, but did not yet proposed legislation that really tests the allegiance to Republicans. The collapse of the Pacific trade deal, you might say, was a first sign of that, but there is tremendous opposition amongst Democrats to that as well. But I don't think that the Bannon program, the the America First economic nationalism, will survive. Trump has paid his debts off handsomely (laughs) to the energy industry and to the Christians, and to some extent to part of Wall Street. But the rest of the program simply goes against the grain of 
the recomposition of the economies of the red states. Finally, there is one small group of Trump backers who truly are economic nationalists. And they're people like the DeVoses in, in Michigan or the three billionaire families that are the major backers of Scott Walker. One of them manufactures boxes and industrial packaging and another roofing material. And they represent the old Taft wing of the Republican Party, mm-hmm. family, home market, industrial businesses who suffer when plants slow down and jobs are exported. But they're actually a very small group, and they have very little power ultimately over national economic policy. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman, and I'm talking with Mike Davis. And we're talking about, I guess, Trump's campaign and Trump's governance so far and some of the contradictions therein. And it, earlier, Mike, you said that this was Clinton's loss more than Trump's win in a way. And I guess the issue is, what role would you say her political strategy was in losing the election? What was her approach to the working class voter, especially in Rust Belt towns and cities along uh, well, with she, mining she districts? essentially... It didn't have one. Some of the old pros, including people who've been involved in the Clinton's campaigns in the 90s, mm. you know, were just mind-boggled by in the neglected places like Wisconsin, which she didn't appear in at all after the convention, where it was clear that the Scott Walker forces they had a groundswell and where the local Democrats were begging them. In Ohio, the state where actually a, a bare majority of the union households actually voted for Trump, there are all kinds of warning signals. Dayton, for instance, mm. she voted for Obama, and she refused to go there. People think about the election a lot in terms of metropolis versus the rural areas. But the crucial areas in the Midwest are these counties that are dominated by small industrial cities. Ashtabula, Lorraine, Warren, Erie. These are the, the heart, the birthplaces of the CIO. This is traditionally kind of holy ground to the labor movement and the Democratic Party. And she didn't campaign there at all, nor did she address the total collapse of the Democratic Party in in Appalachia, part of which has to do with cultural politics, some extent to racism. But it's been, above all, the absence of any policy whatsoever to deal with the regional crisis in the mountain counties of the South. And I point out the example of one county in uh, eastern Kentucky that had never voted Republican, had voted for Obama. Almost all white county farmers and miners. And so first time in history, it bolted. The Clinton strategy was based on putting all the resources into the metropolitan areas, getting out the Obama vote with the help of Obama, But above all, the belief that she could win over Republican working professional women, right? you know, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, Columbus. Since we're on that, Mike. And that didn't happen. 
Well, I was just going to say the Democrats, you know, are doubling down on defeat right now and seeming to take the same course. And they're refusing to break from the policy from before. And a lot of people are asking the question of whether the Democratic Party can survive since the election. They've done everything to attack Sanders, to attack the Russians, to attack Comey, anything but look at their own policies. And I think one serious indication is that, you know, a thousand seats, Democratic seats have been lost since Obama till now across the country in federal and state legislatures. And it's continuing in the same direction. So given all of that, and we've seen this emerging intraparty structure of power and the appointment now of the moderate Perez rather than Keith Ellison as the head of the DNC, are they going to continue, do you think, to diss their base and blame everyone but themselves? Well, it's very clear that the Clinton-Obama establishment in the Democratic Party is rapidly reorganizing itself with the Center for American Progress uh, Mm -hmm. Podesta's think tank destined to play a kind of heritage foundation role, a much more powerful role in the party. And they're doing this at a time when We're all being told that we have to be totally united behind the resistance and basically a total negative strategy of resisting anything that Trump or the Republicans do. And, of course, resistance to the INS, resistance to all the attacks on on people's rights, absolutely essential. But there's danger here of losing any autonomy or freedom of maneuver, but also losing the substance of say, the Sanders campaign. That's where I wanted you to go, yeah. Economic Bill of Rights, free public education. And at the same time, the Democrats show no sign that they'll be able to wake up and deal with the problems of declining industries and employment in the Rust Belt or for other reasons. You look at a state like Ohio, I mean, the Democratic Party is just almost dead in Ohio. And it's dead because it's ignored its grassroots. It's dependent on political consultants and Columbus who run it. And aging Democratic incumbents who have this terrible track record in elections. On the other side, the Republicans have created an enormous state-level infrastructure throughout the region with billionaires financing state-level policy institutes supported by ALEC and Republican National organizations with medium and long-term strategies for taking power at every level and aiming to impose right to work, destroy public union bargaining rights, privatize public education, and push through uh, fundamentalist agendas. And they've been astonishingly successful in doing that. Because you mentioned the resistance in the same breath as you did the Democratic establishment, and yet one of the most heartening things that we've seen in this period is the tremendous amount of movement resistance to everything going on. And I just wonder if you think that that is still going to be strong in the future, the Sanderista movement, as you call it. Well, it will. And also would be utterly wrong to expect that Suddenly, we're going to hold a convention and create a new People's Party and unify the resistance. One of the strengths of the resistance is that it's breaking out everywhere. But it must stay independent of the Democratic Party. We must not lose the political independence that's been generated over the last year. And we cannot forget how bankrupt 
the Democratic Party is. Now, obviously, a lot depends on what Sanders and Warren do, but we can't just follow their lead. We must understand how this result happened and how much of it was due to the bankruptcy of the Democratic Party when it comes to jobs declining regions and cities and, in general, its whole neoliberal program. Right. I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you saw the reasserting of control of the DLC neoliberals in uh, getting Perizin rather than Ellison and what you think that portends both for the Democratic Party and I guess for the left because what we have in this country, unfortunately, in this two-party system is a pendulum that just swings back and forth between those two. Well, I mean, the dynamic of neoliberalism, the momentum behind it, of course, was the expansion of world trade and the existence of large and powerful groups like the software industry and finance, Hollywood, and so on, who profited immensely from globalization. But the truth is, for the last several years, world trade is not growing. Or if it's growing, it's only growing in a very sluggish way, and it's not creating jobs. So behind the crisis of the traditional parties, the neoliberal parties in Europe and the United States, is the reality of economic stagnation. And that's something, of course, that the Democrats don't even really want to talk about. I mean, we're still pretending we can create sufficient number of new jobs through infrastructure spending and so on. And that's, of course, even a weakness of the Sanders campaign, which, of course, I supported. who talked about the loss of manufacturing and industrial jobs as a function of trade treaties and the absence of fair trade agreements, exported jobs to low-wage countries. But the threat now, of course, is less from the exported jobs than from automation. And some people have gotten very excited about the possibility that plants will move back onshore, return from Asia or Mexico. The problem is they won't return with the jobs that were taken away. They'll return to more automated plants. And many of these plants employ, oh, a sixth or a seventh of the workers that they employed when they left the country or would have, say, 10 years ago. And as we know from the example of automated vehicles, Artificial intelligence and automation pose not just a future threat to jobs, but an imminent one. It's coming a lot faster than I think most of us, certainly myself, realize. Even in the gregariat, you know, those who are driving Uber or Lyft, and there's a threat there of the driverless cars and the fast food outlets without any people. As you say, it's happening incredibly quickly. And it's not being really talked about. Sure, you can find lots of books on the jobless economy and the you know new threats of robotization and automation. But in the political sphere, everybody ignores it. The problem is simply too gigantic, and there aren't solutions within the existing party programs. So this is the 800-pound gorilla or something that sits in the room that nobody wants to talk about. And I would say as well, even liberal economists like Krugman and others talk about how well under Obama we were getting very close to full employment (laughs) and then saying that's why, you know, we should support the Democrats. I mean, Krugman's interesting in this regard because he's also pointed out in articles 
that the unemployment rate is artificially low because so many people, particularly middle-aged and older workers, have simply dropped out of the workforce, most disastrously in the case of African-American men. And if you measured the workers who might be mobilized to seek work, if there were decent jobs available for them, it would be a lot different. We'd see that unemployment is really structurally double what it is. I mean, even Trump, I mean, he's throwing out fantastic figures, like 40% of the population is unemployed. But he wasn't wrong to be skeptical about the official unemployment statistics in face of this sharp decline in participation in the labor force. And it helped him get elected. Now, of course, now that he's in, he hasn't really said those sorts of things. Well, yeah, I mean, he seemed to be speaking the truth about economic realities that were otherwise covered up or ignored and all the cheerleading about the recovery. But the fate, it's not simply the United States. The fate of the world economy right now is stagnation. Some economists, establishment economists, you know, talking about long-term stagnation. And what that means, of course, huge increases internationally in the number of people who can't find niches in the formal economy and are driven to often the most primitive kind of subsistence categories. In this country, it simply means that any hope that the private sector will generate sufficient jobs, not just for people who've lost their jobs been displaced, but for the millions of, of younger people coming out of the colleges and universities, particularly those from working class and immigrant backgrounds, you know, the first to go to college, and they're the flagships for their families' hope. And they're stumbling into an economy where none of the old rules apply, where it's very uncertain how you escape the precariat or casual employment. How do you really find a niche? And at the end of the day, the solution has to be the public sector, has to create socially meaningful jobs that provide a decent standard of living by right. And that, of course, is a fantastically radical proposal to make today, maybe not during the New Deal years, when in fact the government attempted to do that to some extent. But right now, if you talk about a larger public sector, if you talk about public employment, if you talk about social ownership of banks or industries, despite the fact that supposedly millions of us are now socialists. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you, Mike, because this leads right into the fact that during the Sanders campaign, the word socialism could be used without the taint of the Cold War, you know, red baiting around it. And for this whole new generation of young people, socialism is preferable to capitalism, at least if you look at the polls. And he wasn't shy about using it. So it's brought a revival of the term. And now you've talked about the reality of the situation of the world economy, some countries and some people are proposing UBI, universal basic income, but what do you think about the prospects for socialism? Well, we're talking about two different things here, although they are related. One is the fact that for 40, almost 50 years, the Democratic Party represented a program of full employment, Officially, it was even passed into law in the 
quickly eviscerated Humphrey Hawkins' bill mm. under Carter. But from the second half of the Carter administration onward, the Democrats have abandoned full employment. And traditional liberalism, which can be defined with some accuracy by FTR's fourth-term campaign platform, the idea of an economic bill of rights, that passed from the realm of the possible, from the realm of the mainstream, into the realm of the very radical, because it's been abandoned by the Democrats. And the Sanders campaign ran on that terrain, traditional New Deal promises to ordinary people and the idea of an economic bill of rights, which he staked out in two crucial regards in terms of universal single-payer health coverage and free public education. It's enormously important, and these demands are, of course, much more radical today than they were in the age of, say, Kennedy Johnson. But that is socialism. Socialism is ultimately addresses the question of economic power. And a few years ago, I got into trouble with some people for suggesting that Occupy was really too conservative. While it brought very successfully the question of income inequality to the forefront of politics, and that was enormously important, behind income inequality, economic inequality, it's a question of who controls investment, who controls the flow of capital, and ultimately, who controls the economy that's been built by the social labor of millions and millions of people, who controls the banks. And the movement has not yet got to the point that it really has squarely addressed those questions, not even within the context it's raised in terms of demands around health care, say, or the financial crisis. I mean, just one instance, both during the savings and loan crisis a generation ago, and then after 2008, the government came into possession, ownership, of hundreds of thousands, actually millions of units of housing. And in both cases, they were ultimately sold off, auctioned off, and the private sector kind of fire sale rates. Socialist demand would be, okay, the government now has a stock of housing. Let's right. use it to rehouse people, including the people who forced out of their, their homes after they were not able to pay their mortgages. 2008 itself, why bail out the banks? We should own the banks, right. which is not, by the way, a particularly revolutionary demand. A country like Sweden faced with similar bank problems, did nationalize the banks. Other countries have as well. Iceland, of course, yes. Well, Mike, thank you so much. I think that sort of lays it out for us, and we know clearly what tasks lay ahead. I want to thank you so much for <laughs> My joining, pleasure. joining us on Radio Jacobin. Mike Davis. Mike's latest article that is going to appear in the inaugural issue of Catalyst is on the Jacobin website, and it's called The Great God Trump and the White Working Class. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.